0: The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Well, good morning. It's good to be together as we gather to hear God's word. And what a privilege it is to be a church that welcomes the little ones as they come to Jesus. So would you join me as we pray? Father in heaven, We ask that you would work now by the power of your Spirit and give us eyes to see your beauty, your majesty, and more of who you are. So take away our blinders and help us to see like you see, to feel what you feel, to think like you think. We want to be conformed increasingly into the image of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Back in December, the Supreme Court of the United States heard oral arguments on the Dobbs versus Jackson women's health case. Some of you might be familiar with this case or might have followed along. The court will decide sometime this summer whether a Mississippi law to ban abortion after 15 weeks of pregnancy will be either upheld or struck down. The United States is currently one of seven countries out of 198 countries who allows an abortion after 20 weeks of pregnancy, along with countries like China and North Korea. And, and I was watching some of the news coverage of this of, uh, Supreme Court case as it was taking place. And one of the most troubling images during the oral arguments wasn't what was taking place inside the building, but what was taking place outside the building. On the front steps of the Supreme Court building, there was a group of young women who chanted, abortion pills are in our hands and we won't stop. And and then they chanted abortion pills forever. And then A number of them, with little white boxes that were labeled abortion pills, gleefully took those pills and ingested them. So here here we have a portion of our society that is joyfully reenacting the chemical murder of their own children, whether that's actually taking place or not. And, And we have this other side of our culture where many of us know firsthand the The pain, the deep pain, the heartache, the grief of miscarriage, of stillbirth, of unsuccessful fertility treatments, and any other pregnancy loss. And and so the question that, that is on my mind is, why do we have such divergent views of children? Some who celebrate that they have the ability through the mail, to take a pill, to kill their own children and others who, who, who weep and grieve that they've lost their child? I think the answer is that we have lost sight of God in our world and his beauty in designing it. We have lost sight of God who is at the center of all that exists and his glorious design. These young women who chanted abortion pills forever with big smiles on their faces, I suspect that they do not know the God of the Bible. They don't have a personal relationship with God. I suspect that they have not been told that the complexity of their bodies, the beautiful, intricate complexities of their bodies have been put there by God. I suspect that they have... Not been told that every beautiful aspect of who they are has been handcrafted by their creator. Made with stunning detail and design. We live in a world that denies the wonderful works of our creator. And what I want to do this morning is look at Psalm 139, which I believe gives one of the most compelling cases for God's relationship and work in his creation. And you heard it read, and we're going to read portions of it again. And I think the main point of Psalm 139 that I want us to see this morning is this. Because of God's love and care for his creation, because of God's love, all-knowing love, ever-present care for his creation, we are to walk in humble Obedience. We don't shake our fist at the Creator, but we walk in humble obedience. And, and I think when we truly understand Psalm 139, we will be a people who will not devalue any human life made in the image of God. And my aim this morning is, is that we would see the profound love of the Father— that we would see the ever-present, meticulous care of Jesus. And for some of us, that we would feel the searing conviction of the Spirit this morning. So here's our plan. I want to look at this psalm in two main sections, verses 1 through 18, which I think kind of highlights the reach of God's love. And then verses 19 to 24, the results of God's love. So the reach of God's love and then the results of God's love. Love. So just a brief overview of Psalm 139. It's written by King David. It has lots of different elements of praise and wisdom and lament and prayer, and it contemplates what God is like. And these first 18 verses can be kind of separated into three stanzas, and we can see the omniscience of God, that God knows everything. We can see his omnipresence, that God is present everywhere, and then his omnipotence, that God has the power to do all things. And so I want to look at verses one through six first, that God knows us. God knows us. Verses one through six tell us that God knows us better than we even know ourselves. It opens with, Lord, you have searched me and know me. What this is getting at is that God not only just knows what you're thinking about right now, but he has studied every single aspect of you and he knows you completely. He goes on and he says, you know, when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. This is what theologians call the mirrorism, where you use two contrasting ideas like heaven and earth. And it doesn't mean just heaven and just earth, but he means everything. And here he says, you know, when I sit down and when I rise up, not just when I'm sitting, not just when I'm standing, but he knows everything about you at all times. So, Verses 1 through 6 is telling us that God has exhaustive knowledge of us. He knows our every state and even our every thought. He discerns our thoughts from afar. So he knows us A to Z. Better than any x-ray, any CT scan or ultrasound or MRI, God sees and knows us. It's stunning to just ponder that God knows everything that there is to know about you. And even the things you don't know about yourself, he knows. My my wife celebrated uh, a big round number birthday. I won't tell you which one uh, (laughs) recently. And and for months on end, I just kept asking her, like, what do you want to do? Like, how do you want to celebrate? What if we had these people over? How about, you know, these things? And I just kept throwing out ideas. I recruited the kids to ask so that we would just have some idea because I didn't fully know what she wanted. And, and I know my wife pretty well. We're one flesh. We, we, we live together. We sleep in the same bed. And yet, I, I didn't know everything that there is to know about her. And yet, just ponder this for a moment. God knows everything, everything that there is to know about you. There is no comparison. Luke twelve seven says, he even knows how many hairs are on your head. Or how many you used to have for some of you. (laughs) So, now, now let me ask you this question Is this type of knowledge of God about us comforting or disconcerting? He knows your every thought, everything you have ever done, everything you have ever said, everything that you didn't say but you thought you might say, He knew. Is that comforting? He knows the good and the bad and the ugly. I think if we're being honest, that is a frightening thought. If I knew everything that there is to know about you, you would not like it. I would not like it. I wouldn't want that level of knowledge. It would be odd, creepy even. And yet, hear the psalmist in verse 5 and 6. He says, you hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. And then he says, such knowledge is is too wonderful for me. It is high and I cannot attain it. He doesn't see it as creepy. He's not freaked out by it. He says, this is so glorious and wonderful that my God knows me fully. The psalmist exclaims that this is glorious knowledge. Why? Why is it good that God knows every single thing, the good and the bad and the ugly about us? I think it's because if we truly understand God's character, it's good news. And if we truly understand God, if we know God, it's because God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Exodus 34, 6. That is his character. But if you don't know God, you might be afraid of him. Now, on this side of the cross, we also know that our sins have been forgiven by the blood of Jesus. So, All the good and the bad and the ugly that God knows about us, all all the bad and the ugly and the heinous and the wicked and the evil have been washed over and covered by the blood of Jesus. And that is glorious good news, is it not? Not only are you fully known, but you're fully loved by the God of heaven and earth. We have been crucified with Christ and we now live by faith. And the son of God who loved us and gave himself up for us. He didn't look at you knowing all that there is to know and say, "Ah, no, thanks. I don't want that one. He says, bring it on. My son's blood is for you. So God knows us, one through six. God is present with us in verses seven through 12. God is present with us. Stanza two answers. The question of, can I get away from God? And the answer is no. Verse 7, he says, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. Again, he's using these contrasting images. Wherever I could go, God is there. It's almost like the language of God chasing down a criminal on the run, which shows up in Amos chapter 9, verse 2. Verses 9. Verse 9 says, if I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. So, so the thought is, if I could fly like Superman and go all the way to the heavens— or wherever I could fly to, God would still find me. If I could plunge into the very deepest parts of the ocean where there is no light and there are still little organisms that we have not fully discovered and named and categorized, God would still know that we are there. Your hand shall lead me. Your right hand shall hold me. So if we're in rebellion, running away from God like Jonah, God will come And find us like the hound of heaven. Now in verse 11 and 12. He gives kind of another illustration with light and darkness. And he says surely if I say surely the darkness shall cover me in the light. About me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day. For darkness is as light with you. The the whole point there is that even if I could hide away in the darkness. Like in a dungeon or in a prison cell. where, Where there is no light. I still couldn't run away from God. The darkness is not as dark to the Lord. God is ever-present with us. So again, is is this good news or bad news? That God's omniscience and omnipresence, is it a blessing or is it a curse? Well, it is both, isn't it? Jesus is our all-knowing and ever-present shepherd who leads and guides his children. And that is a glorious reality. If you're in Christ this morning, to rest in. These should be comforting verses for you this morning. But if we're outside of Christ, if we do not know Jesus, these verses, these first 12 verses should be shocking. They should be fear-inducing. The world may offer you lots of different privacy options incognito browsing, encryptions, and VPNs. We may think that our actions and our words and our thoughts are hidden from our employers and from our families and from our parents and from those around us, but God sees it all. There is not a word or deed or thought that he does not see. And, and for some of us who are not in Christ this morning, it should push you To come under the cleansing blood of Jesus. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. But let me just apply these first two stanzas for us this morning. For those in Christ, these verses should be some of the most comforting verses for believers. A balm to our souls. And I know that there are some this morning who feel utterly unknown and unseen by the world around them. We wonder if anyone sees our heartache and pain. Does anyone care about me? Would anyone care if I just disappeared? Does anyone truly understand everything that I'm going through? Would anyone notice if I stopped showing up to work or to church? Would anyone know if I took my life? Does anyone understand the pain that I feel? that pushes me towards the bottle or to pills or to cutting. And I know that we have people who are struggling with those very things here in this body this morning. Does anyone see the fear and anxiety that just grips me? I don't want to be fully known. I don't even want people at church to ask me how I'm doing because I'm scared they're going to see through the words, I'm good. When reality is, I might just break down and cry at any moment. Does anyone know the tears that I shed all alone in my silent suffering? And if that is you this morning, if that is one of the things that you have said or thought, you need to hear the words of your Savior this morning. Yes, God sees you, God knows you, and God loves you. He has his all-knowing, ever-present love and hand upon you this morning. Even if you might call a friend and not be able to get a hold of him, the hound of heaven is coming after you. He will not drop any of your calls. You can go to him this morning. God knows us and is always with us this morning. This is a comfort to silent suffering, and a self-reflection for those without Christ. Now, I want to transition to verses 13 through 18. This is the third stanza that makes up this first part. And not only does God know us, not only is he present with us, but now God made us. And these verses, in particular, 13 to 18, have massive ramifications for us on Sanctity of Human Life weekend. But uh, let, let me just now look at god 's not omnipotence in creation, so verse thirteen you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother 's womb, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame is not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw even my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How well does God know you even before you were you? He knew us when we were an unformed substance. He was knitting us, weaving us together from within the womb. We have some pretty amazing technology nowadays. For the mothers who have been recently pregnant, you can now go get like a 3D ultrasound. And they'll show you what your baby looks like in 3D. And I think there's a 4D version as well. They have insight into the womb to see, you know, is there a cleft palate or lip or, or, you know, are all the limbs there, all the appendages there. They can just do all of these insights even when the baby's not yet out. You know, even more amazing, they can even do surgeries from within the womb these days. God knows us better than that. Ephesians 1.4, he chose us in him before the very foundations of the world. Before there was a world, before the very foundations of this world were created, God knew us, saw us, and loved us. And some of you need to hear this this morning. Because some of us don't know who our fathers or mothers, don't know who they are, don't know who what what they're like, for whatever reason. For some of us, our conception was a result of sin or violence or wickedness. And God still knows. He cares about every single one of your days that he's planned in advance. Every life is precious and fashioned and molded together by the very sovereign hands of God. And for some of us this morning, we've wondered, if my own biological flesh and blood did not love me, didn't, I, I don't know them, how could I possibly be loved by others? And what you need to hear definitively and decisively is, God knew you. He loves you. He makes no mistakes. You are a child Of the Most High God, and you are part of His marvelous workmanship that He has created. This is the most detail oriented being on the face of the earth. I'm pretty detail oriented. You know, I like everything at right angles in my office and organized and in their place. And God is the most detail oriented person in the world. He doesn't make mistakes, not with you, not with your neighbor not with that pre-born baby in the womb. Look at verse 17 and 18. I am stunned by verse 17 and 18. I don't know if you are. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. It just keeps getting better and better and better. I think what verse 17 and 18 is saying is that not only did God create us, not only did he fashion us, but he actually thinks about us. Your, your thoughts, oh God, how vast is the sum of them? Not only does he think about us, but the thoughts that God has about us outnumber the sand, the grains of sand on the seashore. It's incalculable and incomprehensible how often, how much, how, how much God thinks about us. It almost sounds like I'm becoming a self-help, man-centered preacher. God really loves you and thinks about you. And yet that is exactly what this psalm is saying. God really loves you and he thinks about us. If we were to fall asleep, he is still with us. This is how wonderful and glorious God's knowledge is of us, his creatures and creation. And as we try to apply this for us, On Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, the truths are very simple. God makes children from within the womb, does he not? All children in the womb, outside the womb, are because of God's intentional, skillful, creative work from within the womb. Even at the unformed substance level, when days or weeks old, there's an argument Uh, among the Supreme Court, you know, what's the line of viability? Even before the line of viability, whether that's an appropriate way to think about it or not, God is the author of life. Even in its unformed substance, God is making children within the womb. If we don't understand God as the very author and craftsman of life, then we will not value life like God values life. Abortion is wrong because we are giving and taking life, which God alone is responsible for. Job 14, 5. His days, man's days, are determined, and the number of his months is with you, God, and you have appointed his limits that he cannot pass. Maybe just a pastoral word in this moment. It seems appropriate to give... Uh, a word here. Every child is a product of God's marvelous workmanship. And it's true. That, that, that truth is true. Your child is a product of God's marvelous workmanship, even if your child died in miscarriage or stillbirth. God sees and knows each one of them by name. It's true even if your child has never breathed a moment outside the womb. It's true even if your child's life ended in abortion. There is abounding and lavish grace at the foot of the cross for forgiveness of sins if you are in that category. Every child is a product of God's glorious, magnificent workmanship. Yes, even if your child has severe or mild disabilities, even if he may never eat or play or speak or live normally. God cares about the tiniest details of their lives and has formed each and every single one of them. I don't, I don't know why children, some children, are born with cleft lips, cleft palates, Down syndrome, autism, hydrocephalus, or, or a whole host of other complications. And, and yet God is the craftsman according to Psalm 139. We dare not question his creation. And God gave us a little bit of a glimpse with Jesus, didn't he? John 9. People are asking him, Jesus, who sinned, this man or, or, or his parents, because he's blind? And what does Jesus say? It was not that this man sinned and or his parents, but that the works of God might gloriously be displayed in him. God is gloriously displaying his sovereign power even in disability. So let's be a church that loves and welcomes these children. They teach us humble Christ-like dependence and are living illustrations of our own spiritual neediness. There's a Japanese art form called kintsugi. I don't know if I'm saying it right, but you can Google it later if you want. And and it's basically this art form. They take broken pottery and then they they put it back together, but they fix it. They fill in all the cracks with gold so that what was once a a broken pot is now this beautiful, valuable, one-of-a-kind piece of pottery that has been fixed. And, And it's The name is Golden Joinery, so it kind of means golden repair. And, And the reality is it's not just those who are disabled, but it's all of us who are like that. We are broken, weak jars of clay who have been stained by sin and weakness and just all sorts of sins that have been done against us and that we have committed ourselves And yet God doesn't just put us back together with duct tape. He molds us back together with gold. The gold of his precious blood so that we would be one of a kind instruments of his mercy. This is the offer for all those who are outside of Christ. An invitation to come and surrender to Jesus who knows all, sees all, doesn't recoil in horror but welcomes you to come and find healing and hope and mending at the foot of the cross. Now, I want to transition to verses 19 to 24. So we saw the kind of big picture of the reach of God's love, and now we come to the results of God's love. And this second half of the psalm kind of takes a bit of a surprising turn. You know, maybe when you were reading it or hearing it read, verse 19 is a little bit like, whoa, all of a sudden we're talking about hating people and bloodthirsty men. What's going on? Let's read verses 19 to 22 before we jump in. But this section could probably be called an imprecatory psalm or kind of an imprecatory section of this psalm. Verse 19, it says, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God, O men of blood. Depart from me. They speak evil against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. What's going on in these verses? Because they sound pretty intense. Intense. Well, first, I think we can talk about imprecatory psalms, kind of the psalms in general. When it talks about hating the wicked or calling down curses and punishments on those who are God's enemies, it just reveals that Christians, those who follow Jesus, the disciples of Christ, uh, are, are not robots. But it, the, the Christian life has, is full of all the emotions of life expressed sometimes with raw and unfiltered honesty. We don't deny anger or fear, but what we do do with it is we bring it to God. And that's the appropriate place to bring it. We ultimately entrust judgment and vengeance to God rather than taking it into our own hands. Now, what is verses 19 and 22 trying to say to us? Or what is it calling us to? I think it's this. The psalmist is desiring to think and feel more like God. He wants to hate what God hates and love what God loves. That's what it means to be God-centered or increasingly Christ-like. In view of this psalm, all those who are enemies of God, the wicked men of blood, so they're murderers, those who... With malicious intent, those who take God's name in vain. The psalmist is saying, I want to be so devoted, so zealous for you, God, that the people who hate you, they're my enemies too. And the things that you love, that's the things that I love as well. He prays that he will loathe what God loathes. I'm on God's side. And this is so important for us to get right in this day and age. Because so often there are things that we're, we're, we're sort of saying, ah, should I stand against that? Because that doesn't seem so culturally popular. That's going to put me on the wrong side of my coworkers or my family or history, so-called history. And, and yet, do we hate the wickedness of abortion with a deep hatred? We should, and we should pray for the end of it. Now, let me be clear. It does not mean we hurt anyone, but we pray for such an end of such wickedness. Do we hate human trafficking? Do we hate sex trafficking? We should. Do we hate pornography? We should. Don't harbor it. Don't just keep it at arm's length and put it on a shelf. We hate it. Pornography is the marketing department for the sex trafficking industry that demeans and devalues and imprisons thousands of people who have been made in the very image of God. Don't we dare dabble in such wickedness? Should we be devastated, brothers and sisters, at our casual indifference to abortion or human trafficking or pornography or genocide or ethnic cleansing? Oh, that we would think thoughts like, God, teach us, Lord, to hate what you hate and to love what you love. So that's what this psalm Is calling for. Because of God's great and glorious knowledge, his love for us, his care for us, we want to be loyal to God. We want to be zealous for God. We want to think God's thoughts after him, and we want to hate what he hates and love what he loves. Do we love the church? Do we love the bride of Christ? Do we love the preaching of the gospel? And the fellowship of the saints. If you're watching from home. Don't neglect the gathering. The assembling. Of the family of God. Do we love shows and movies. That celebrate immorality. That if it were in our own lives. It would send us to hell. Or do we hate. Those who call what is evil. Good and good evil. God says he hates wickedness. And so we are to conform our hearts and minds to that of God. And so it's not just a call to bask in God's love, but as we bask in his love and care for us, we are to respond with instincts and hearts that are shaped by God and his word. Romans twelve nine says, Abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. Abhor it. Get it away from you. And... Let's not forget what Jesus himself teaches us, right? He says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. If you want to be like me, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. God, by his grace, sends common grace to both the evil and the good. And so in the same way that God shows his common grace to his enemies, we are to love our enemies by praying for their repentance. And for some of us, that means befriending people that we disagree with so that we can show them Jesus. That we would pray and pray and pray for open doors to engage them. That we would hate the wickedness of abortion and human trafficking and pray for God to save the abortionist and the trafficker. We can do both those things. We must do both those things. How else will they hear unless we pray and engage them? The second piece, the second response, so loyalty in the first one, and then humility in verses 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. The psalm started with, you have searched me, and now he ends in that same way. Search me again, God. Search me and try me. You know all my thoughts, and yet there are thoughts and feelings and instincts from within me that I don't even see. I think I'm walking blamelessly, but it's a good prayer for all Christians to pray. Lord, help me with my blind spots, the things that I don't see, because there is no room for arrogance before a God who knows us and loves us perfectly. There is only room for humility. And so these closing verses are like an invitation for God to be our wonderful counselor. You remember that from Isaiah? He's our wonderful counselor. So when you go to counseling, you you talk to someone, and they usually ask you a bunch of questions to draw out your heart so that you begin to see things that you didn't otherwise see or that you couldn't otherwise articulate. Oh, that's why I feel that way. That's why I do that, because of this childhood thing because my parents did that. And we're inviting God to be our counselor so that he could reveal our thoughts to us so that we might repent if there are any grievous ways in us and so that we can walk in his way everlasting. So how should we respond to God's beautiful self-revelation of his omniscience and omnipresence and omnipotence? we to be loyal And we're to be zealous for God. We want to pray, God, help me as a Christian living in this world to really hate the things that you hate. To really love the things that you love. And then to pray for my enemies, to pray for repentance, and not just repentance out there, but repentance in here. Where are the blind spots? Where are the areas that I am still not seeing clearly? Sometimes we read the Bible and we think, how could they be so stupid? David, right? Man after God's own heart. Takes Bathsheba to be his wife. Actually, not even his wife, but takes her. And then schemes to get Uriah killed. Murders him. And he's totally, utterly blind to his heinous sin. Until... Nathan the prophet comes and, you know, tells him the story. You're the man. And, and, and the reality is we have those blind spots. And so, oh, may God be gracious to help us see where we're blind. That he would search us and try us, know our heart and our thoughts, so that there would be no grievous ways in us, so that we might repent and turn and flee and walk in his everlasting life ways. Isn't that what we want this morning? We want to walk in God's everlasting ways. We don't want to keep harboring a little bit of wickedness, you know, just enough that won't send me to hell. I'll just keep dabbling. We want to walk in the ways that are everlasting because of God's grace. And so this morning, take a moment in the quiet of your heart to invite the Spirit to come in and to shine His light of truth into our souls. Are we going through a trial? Perhaps God is using that to burn away the dross so that you would be increasingly purified. Are you facing something hard? He may be using that right now so that you would stop trusting in yourself and trust in him. May we open ourselves up to the great physician who could do chemotherapy on our souls so that we would be pure and walk forever in his ways, everlasting. I began by highlighting those young women on the steps of the courthouse. And, and they're chanting, abortion pills forever, abortion pills forever, abortion pills forever, big smiles on their face. And that reality, that phrase that slogan is not true. Abortion pills will not last forever. The scars and stain of abortion will not last forever either. If anyone has received or encouraged or performed an abortion, God can and will cleanse you from your sin and redeem you by his precious blood. Forgiveness of sins and everlasting life is held out to all who will put aside everything else, and trust in Jesus. It is a free gift. Praise be to God that there is forgiveness of sins, because we have all committed sins. It may not be that one, but we've all committed sins that would otherwise send us to hell, and yet God, in his lavish grace, has fully known us, knows everything about us, and has loved us with an everlasting love in Jesus. Amen? And so abortion pills will not be the final note. What will be the final note, what will last forever, is that the wonderful works of God will be displayed in and through his church, in this life, and in the next. And we will, by his grace, be led by Jesus in the way everlasting. Let's pray. Father, oh, we want our hearts to feel what you feel to look out on the lost and have compassion on them. We want to hate our sin with a deep, abiding hatred. We want to love Jesus more. We want to see ourselves in the light of Christ, that Jesus' blood has covered us over, so that we wouldn't hate ourselves, but we wouldn't love ourselves shallowly, but that we would see even our own selves through the eyes of faith as you see your Son, Jesus. So shape our hearts this morning, Lord. Make us a people that would shine forth as salt and light here in this world for the good of this culture, for the glory of your name, and for our everlasting joy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others. But please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church